0: Hi, I'm Andrea Blythe, co-host of New Books and Poetry, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today we're speaking with Chelsea Wagner about her book, The Spinning Place. Chelsea is the author of two collections of poetry. Most recently, The Spinning Place was the winner of the 2018 Michael Waters Prize. Her first collection, Mercy Spurs the Bone, was selected by Philip Levine to win the 2013 Philip Levine Prize. She holds degrees from the University of Virginia and the University of North Texas, and currently teaches at Valparaiso University. Her recent work appears or is forthcoming in Image and the Southern Review. Thank you for being on the show, Chelsea.
1: Yes, thank you for having me.
0: It is my pleasure. So generally, I kind of like to start at the beginning of... a poet's adventures. And so I would love if you tell us a bit about how you first started to connect with poetry as a reader and a writer. Yeah.
1: Um, it's funny. Well, there's like the long version and the short version. The shorter version is uh, what happened in college, basically. Um, I went to college. I'd always loved to read, knew I wanted to major in English. And I kind of had this sense that I I wanted to write, but I didn't really know what I wanted to write. Um, I just had always really enjoyed creative writing and actually gravitated toward poetry, um, even as a child, which is kind of odd. Uh, So I took an intro to poetry writing class my second year of college. This was at the University of Virginia. um, And those were taught, the intro classes were taught by MFA students there. Um, They have a wonderful MFA program. And I just, I don't even really remember what my instructor said on the first day of class, other than that I was, I just felt like, oh, this is what I wanted to do. Just the way she talked about poetry and why she loved it and what we were going to be reading and exploring in the class. um, I just felt like a lot of things clicked into place. And that proved true throughout the class. Um, I just kind of discovered, I mean, all my early poems are so Horrific to look back on. But um, I mean, I wasn't writing anything good, but I discovered that what poetry does with language was what I was interested in about language. Um, I love fiction, but the idea of having to sort of create a whole world and think of a plot and have cause and effect that overwhelms me. Um, but I'm interested in words and in the sounds of words and in um, the really concentrated, distillate distilling work that poetry does so it started there um my second year of college and then actually majored in poetry writing you can major in that at the University of Virginia (laughs) my mother she I think she was a little skeptical um
0: but she didn't give me a hard time about it so I'm grateful for that (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing um So as you were starting to get into poetry, who were some of the poets who inspired you and uh, drew you deeper into the language?
1: I remember uh, encountering Lee Young Lee's work in that intro class. um, And specifically his poem Persimmons was really instructive to me initially um, in terms of just really careful, descriptive work and how much work the image does in a poem emotionally. Um, other poets that I read early on and who are still important to me um, might be Lisa Ruspar. She was actually one of my teachers at UVA, um, but her work is really lyrical and dense. Um, it's many, many layered and tends to be short. I have kind of a love affair with short poems. Um, so I still read her a lot. She's really important to me um, I'm kind of blanking on who else I read early on. Uh, Mary Shebist is another poet whose work I really admire. Um, yeah, <laughs> Some <of the> early, <laughs> early writers.
0: Yeah. It's hard to remember them all for sure, but yeah, that's great. Um, so your first book was Mercy Spurs the Bone. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk briefly a little bit about that book and how you think you've evolved as a writer from that book to your new book?
1: Uh yeah. Um this Mercy's First the Bone, that I I kind of spent the first few years out of college writing the poems in that book. Um and that book it went, you know, it changed shape a lot um, as I was working on the manuscript and sending it out, which I did for a few years. Um, I threw away a lot of poems and and hoped to help it have more of a cohesive shape. Though I think I tend to agree with the sometimes it's a criticism, but with the critique of debut collections for being kind of like. These are all the best poems I've ever written. I put them into one book um, and now I can move on to something more mature and kind of project based. Um, I definitely think my first book falls into that category. David Wojohn wrote once that first books have, they're always divided into sections, either explicitly or implicitly. And the first one is poems loosely about childhood. And the second one is poems loosely about sex. (laughs) I've read so many first books that do do that, but I don't think that makes them bad. I enjoy poems about childhood and poems about sex. So I see both of those um, working in that first book. Um, So I do think that my second collection is a bit more mature in the sense that I had kind of written through some of that early, you know, typical early things that you're writing about when you're writing poetry. Um, And I had more of a sense of what I wanted the book, The Spinning Place, to be about. Um, Like I was, it was more anchored in ideas um, like origin and uh, the body as the site of um, ecstasy and agony. Uh, And so as I started seeing myself writing toward those ideas, um, I more consciously thought like, okay, what? what poems do I need to fill in the gaps? Like what, what else do, how else do I need to explore this um, to make it feel cohesive in a collection? So I, I wrote toward it as a book a, a
0: lot more consciously than I did with my first book. So how did you come to writing The Spinning Place and and figuring out the shape that it was going to be?
1: Hmm. Um, so the book, it was... It functioned as part of my dissertation um, at the University of North Texas. So I started writing it, well, some of the poems came earlier before I knew they were going in the book, but it was really kind of my last two years of the PhD where I was thinking about the book and that kind of, it serendipitously collided with my getting pregnant with my first child um, and giving birth to her. I wasn't really thinking a lot about origin and not about the body and the way that I was until I was pregnant. Um, and so it, just the fact that I was working on those two things, like gestating a human mm-hmm. and gestating a book at the same time, um, brought them together in a way that, I mean, it just I don't know what the book would have been if I hadn't had her initially at that moment. Um, so a lot of the poems, I mean, it picked up a lot of momentum once those two things coincided, if that makes sense. Um, I would have had to write something either way, but a lot of the poems came because my, I could, you know, my kind of like artistic life and my personal life, which are never really that separate, but they came together in a way that I really could not separate myself from. Um, and then after the, what I defended as my dissertation looks pretty different from what it is now. Um, I revised it and worked on it for two years after I graduated. Um, So, I mean, I think the poems there got better and some got thrown out and new ones were written. Um, And I think it took on a much more, um, I don't know, it became just a more independent, stronger collection than it was when it was my
0: dissertation. The title of book is also the name used for a series of poems. Like the opening poem is named "The Spinning Place," the final poem is called "The Spinning Place," and then there's various Spinning Place poems scattered throughout the book. I'm always fascinated by poems that appear as a series when, with the same title, mm-hmm. and I was wondering how these particular poems came about and whether you sort of planned to have a series. Mm-hmm and how they kind of connect to each other and relate to the whole book.
1: Yeah, I, re- I think I altogether had written five poems called The Spinning Place, but only three made it into the book. Um, and it, it was something, I was just thinking about the idea of spinning um, years ago, like in the very early stages of the book. Um, I don't know if it's started with me kind of rethinking the, the fairy tale, is it a fairy tale about Rumpelstiltskin and, um, spinning the straw into gold. Um, and that one of the poems was kind of narrating that tale. It didn't make it into the book eventually. Um, uh, but I was just thinking about spinning this idea of spinning as something that's like akin to creation. Like you spin language, you spin literal material, like, um, yarn you spent when you're working with like a potter spins at a wheel. Um So I was thinking about the, the movement of spinning too. I was also, um, when I was pregnant with Eloise, I sometimes would become really dizzy and pass out um and have this sensation of the space around me spinning so that it wasn't always positively um connoted. So one of the poems was about that, but I didn't make it into the book. So anyway, I just, also kind of liked the idea of having a book with more than one title poem, um, because title poems, I don't know, they, they have to do so much work. So I felt like it was less intimidating to me if I had more than one title poem so that they were all sharing the burden um, of titling the book. Um, So I just, I wrote a bunch of them. I just tried to think about what are, what are some places that spin and how can I write about that? Um, And settled on the ones that seem to
0: work best with the rest of the poems that's interesting yeah i love the idea of uh spreading the burden of the title poem across (laughs) multiple ones because i know what you mean like i feel like readers are instantly drawn to that title poem and yeah put a weight to it you know yeah absolutely yeah so that brings to mind like this the structure of the book, because you spread those poems across, it kind of spreads out that weight of the title thing and mm-hmm. brings you into each section of poems in a different way or connects to the poems in the book in a different way.
1: Mm-hmm. Can
0: you talk a bit about how you decided to section out the different poems in the book and basically the organizing process? I find it yeah. interesting why poets choose to put poems in certain order.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the order has changed so much. And um, my editor, Ron Mitchell at Southern Indiana Review Press, he helped me a lot with the reordering, too, even after it was accepted. Um, but initially, what I was working with and really the epigraph to the book, which is this excerpt from Dylan Thomas's *Fern Fernhill, um, helps me organize it. I'll just read the excerpt real quick. So it must have been after the birth of the simple light in the first spinning place, the spellbound horses walking warm out of the whinnying green stable onto the fields of praise. Um, so I got the language of the spinning place um, is borrowed from the epigraph, but as I was working on ordering the poems, I started wondering if there were other ways I could use that epigraph to help me with the ordering. So that's how I came with the came up with the titles for the sections being the first spinning out of the winning and green and then fields of praise um, because I think of the sections as kind of loosely adhering to um, origin and then a kind of exile. Um, and then this thinking about ways we reconcile sorrow and joy um, and ways those are brought together literally and figuratively in our lives. Um, and I felt like the language of the epigraph actually really lent itself to that. So that's originally how I conceived of organizing the poems. And then, you know, how I put them, once I had the sections as an idea in my mind, how I put the poems in order, I, I don't know. <laughs> I just read them <laughs> a lot and thought a lot about how <laughs> how to move from one poem to the next. And outside
0: readers were very helpful on that point. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned already that like uh the pregnancy with your daughter became a cohesive connection to this book very intimately so mm-hmm. and as a result a lot of the poems in this book discuss motherhood and in particular in relationship to the body mm-hmm. from the physical aspects like blood and fluids and all that kind of wonderful stuff and and also that sense of wonder and transcendence of the experience of becoming a mother for the first time Mm -hmm. can you talk about the process of trying to express motherhood and that experience through poetry
1: yeah um, that's that's a great question Uh, I will say at first uh, I wrote quite a few poems while I was pregnant with her. Um, but then once she was born, it was like this huge alienating interruption in my life where I don't think I wrote much of anything for at least six months. And I just felt like, I mean, literally my brain was different. <laughs> so there were like <laughs> biological hormonal reasons for this. But since it was my first time having a child, I, I experienced that almost as a kind of trauma. Um, and I felt like my own life and my own mind and body were just completely unfamiliar to me. Um, and I think as we, you know, returned, as we gained some new normal, um, and some schedules and I felt some return to normalcy, but also some acceptance of my new body and my new life and the new little human that I was caring for and loved, but also felt very complex things toward, um, I began to try to write about it. Um, and I, I, it's hard to write about, I mean, there are so many wonderful, wonderful collections that think about motherhood. Um, but it is hard to write about because motherhood is one of those subjects that's overly sentimentalized and in language at least tends to be really cliched. Um, so I, one of the things I've tried to do is just write about it in a way that feels honest to me, but also, um, fresh, you know, like so that it loses some of the baggage of, um, kind of hallmark ways of speaking about motherhood. Um, and for me, like in some poems, for instance, the delivery room poem, which is erasing, um, this passage from the gospel of Matthew, um, and think in recasting it as a delivery room scene, i I felt a little bit transgressive writing that, but also I felt like that was good like I wanted it to feel transgressive and I wanted to think of um the birth of a child as something that is sacred, but also like this violent event that in a way I felt erased me um in some in some senses, so that the erasure there I think maybe works in a few different ways um so i It doesn't all I don't think of it as all just happy and exalted, but but deeply ambivalent,
0: because that's how I felt in many ways. Yeah, it's a it's a complicated emotional experience. Yeah, absolutely. So you kind of brought this up yourself with the idea that motherhood poems tend to be sentimentalized. And I think that's part of the reason why traditionally they've been like down upon in the poetic community is something that's like mm-hmm. has not been worth writing poetry about because of the sentimentality that's generally associated with yeah. it. But um which has changed somewhat as you mentioned there are some amazing collections out there discussing motherhood. Mm-hmm. But um I guess my question is like like what is the value of writing about motherhood and what is the value of reading about motherhood? Mm-hmm.
1: I think one of the things that I've tried to articulate and thought a lot about is that I don't think motherhood poems, I mean, that gives them a nice label so that, you know, you can kind of identify a topic of the poems. Um, But if a poem is about motherhood, especially if it's like a kind of literal biological motherhood, it's also about the body and the way that you use your body in relation to people around you. and i think anybody everybody has a body and everybody has griefs and praises and lamentations about their body um so i think i i hope that these poems speak not just to other women and not just to other women who have children if that makes sense um and i'm i'm glad that it speaks very deeply to them but i feel i feel pretty passionate about um you know not just shelving it as poems for mothers um and that's that's something that i I just thought more about as I was writing the poems because i I want i mean I think one of the one of the things a good poem does is invite the reader into the poem, and I didn't want to only be inviting people who had had similar experiences um and so i yeah I just i I feel like i was trying consciously to allow others into these experiences um not just like create kind of like a private i you don't know a private room where only mothers can come i mean i have many really really good friends who are not mothers um and i i think about that when i when i write
0: yeah it's kind of that idea of taking the personal and trying to make it open to a more universal audience
1: mm-hmm yeah
0: yeah one of the other aspects that I found really beautiful in your connection collection is um the way there was this connection between the natural world
1: mm-hmm.
0: tied into these poems, um the physical world and into the spiritual as well, mm-hmm. one kind of evoking the other um Can you talk it a little bit about that connection,
1: yeah. Um, one of, well, he wasn't, Charles Wright was not my teacher, but he was at the University of Virginia when I was there. And he, so he was kind of quoted all the time. Um, so I feel like he was my teacher. Uh, and one of the things that he said often or says often, I guess, um, is if you walk out into your backyard and it's just your backyard, you might as well crack open another beer. Um, and I, (laughs) I took that really to heart, especially when we lived in North Texas, which was not a place that I found beautiful. Um, And so I did not feel, when I looked out my window, I didn't feel inspired to write anything at all. It just looked like dry, dead, heat withered landscape. And the trees didn't grow very tall and it never rained. And I was used to mountains and beach in Virginia. Um, So I worked pretty hard to be able to name what I like the flora and fauna that was local to me and to look at it differently, um, in an attempt to both get myself to write and to love what was around me. Um, so that some of the, a lot of the poems since they were written in Texas are kind of using, um, Texas natural, natural landscape. Um, and I think maybe because the natural world where I was writing these poems was not one that I found beautiful or that made me happy. Um, it made me want to write about it more. So now I live in a place that I actually do think is very beautiful and it's a little easier to do. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know if I would have been a, a poet of such landscape if I hadn't been working to make myself like where I lived. Um But Charles Wright, to quote him again, um, he's been quoted to me many, many times in my life. Um, He also says that landscape is autobiography. Um, And I think that's, for me, maybe something I use too much, um, but description of the exterior world as a way of moving inward. Um, So that's also another reason that I I turn to the natural world a lot.
0: Hmm. Interesting. I really love that idea of... uh... Choosing to fall in love with the place as opposed to just accepting the frustration.
1: Yeah, or just, yeah, just being frustrated. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Something else you explore in your book um, is the limits of language. Uh, mm-hmm. Those moments for which there are no words. Um, can you talk a bit about this exploration and uh, what are the limits as you understand it?
1: Yeah. Um, that's that's such a huge part of the book. Um, <laughs> um I think sorry, I'm looking at a poem here to try to refamiliarize myself with the ways I've written about this. I think that is born a little bit of what I was saying um earlier of coming into motherhood and feeling at a loss in many ways, um, but also at a loss for language that felt adequate to me for speaking about motherhood, um, it, which is a kind of contradiction because motherhood is such such a common experience. Um, so many people are mothers, so for there not to be a language, a common language that felt adequate, it seems like a glaring contradiction because it's so public and yet it's so intensely private. Um, but I think about I think about the work of poetry as trying to, in a sense, do a kind of futile thing, which is to, art, to make a bridge and to articulate something that is, on one hand, inarticulable. Um, I, I really do think that. I think as much as I love language and as much as I've kind of committed my life to messing with it and putting it on the page and seeing what it does, um, I do think that there is something lost as soon as you say one thing you've eliminated other possibilities you know and you've broken like this sacred quality of silence um which is something that I am also really fascinated about and which is I mean obviously politically a very timely subject right now um what silence is and what are the what are the consequences and the benefits of silence and who should be silent? You know, um, but I think about that a lot in an artistic sense, um, because I think silence is, is, can be active and can be passive. Um, I think the, the poem, I, I hope that the work of the poem is in one sense to break silence, um, but also to invite
0: it and to make space for it. That's a a beautiful thought. Would you like to read one of the poems from your collection? Yeah.
1: I will read. I'll read Night Shift. Moon sliced, street lit, blear. Whole train moving like its own ghost along the tracks. 2 a.m., 3 a.m. My shadow sways as I catch myself. Hand on the wall, pulled from bed by your nocturnal haunt. You at your crib rail, blanket clutched, more sound than body. There, there, shush, shush. You tremble against me, to nightmare without language. No way to tell me who chased you, drowned you, snatched you from my cart when I turned my back. Isn't this a version of hell? Ah, but these are my nightmares. Yours are locked from me in the crypt of your mind, which expands even now towards syntax, memory. Forgive me, I begrudge you these hours. St. Paul wrote of those who had fallen asleep in the Lord. Sleep our foretaste of sleep. Little crier, wild yawp sounding the halls, calling me awake. This is your rehearsal. One day your sound will not resurrect me. I deceive you, climbing from the earth each night, shaking off the tendril roots of green things that would enfold me, grow out of me, make me mother again.
0: That is beautiful.
1: Thank you. So that's one, yeah, where I'm clearly thinking a lot about language. And yeah, as I was reading that, I was thinking another reason that language is so important to the book is because as many of the poems were being written, my daughter was coming into language. So I was thinking a lot about the way that we teach children to speak um, and like what seemed to be their first instincts when they're just making sounds and how we take how we take sound and turn it into something that means something to other people. Um I was just—I was thinking a lot about that, and you know, when whenever you have small children and they're learning to speak but can't do it well, there's this element of frustration when you feel like they're kind of locked away from you, um, because they have feeling and they have sense, but they can't—they can't bring it to you um, in language, and that can be really alienating and frustrating for both. So yeah, all of that kind of had me thinking about the work of language and what's beautiful and what's sad about it.
0: Yeah. So, um, speaking of language, uh, in your opening poem, you ask your class, um, to come up with an experience for which there is no word. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So I want to direct that towards you. What, what is an experience that you wish you had a word for?
1: Hmm. (laughs) 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 Hmm. Oh my gosh. I needed some time <laughs> to prepare for those questions. <laughs> experience I wish I had a word for. I think there are probably so many things. Um, so many things. I wish there were a word for the... Okay, well, one thing that comes to mind is everybody probably recognizes this is when you lock eyes with somebody kind of across the room or whatever. And you know, you're both thinking about the same thing. um, When you lock eyes, I wish there was a word for that. Everybody everybody has that experience, but I don't think there's a word for it. I mean, you do this when you're in a meeting or when you're at home or whatever, and you know, okay, we're on the same page here. There's no word
0: for that. Yeah, totally. That is a good one. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> as I was putting together the questions and and was thinking about that question, I was also thinking about like the the different kinds of uh, experiences in my own life and even small things, and it came up with like this game me and my poet friends played, which is where we would make up words for things that don't have words. Yeah, <laughs> so. I just, I'm delighted by that question and, and the possibilities of that question.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, there are just so many things. Uh, and I was, <laughs> I think I've kind of lamented the loss of that over the past few months as like teaching and meetings and everything has moved to this online format. You can't, you can't do that when you're on Zoom or Google Meet, you can't lock eyes with somebody and think of the same thing, you know, it's just no longer possible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So would you like to talk about some of the projects you're working on now and maybe what the world could expect from you in the future? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Whatever I'm working on, it is in a very fledgling state. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, it's uh, I've, I feel like I just, after, I don't know, after a book comes out, I, there's something I think really scary about, finishing a collection and naming it done because then once that's done, at least if you're me, you feel like, Oh crap, what am I going to do now? Like you're starting all the way back at the beginning. Um, and I feel like I'm still kind of in that beginning, but I'm not so scared of it. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm showing up at my desk figuratively. I don't really have a desk, I guess, um, <laughs> at the kitchen table <laughs> in the early hours of the morning um, and just just, Writing what I can, and it's it's kind of the exciting part of a new um a new project because I don't really know what I'm working on or where it's going. I'm just kind of seeing what comes out um and maybe in a few months i'll I'll take stock of what I've written and kind of start doing that work of well what am i what do I seem to be returning to and kind of obsessing about, and how can I develop that more intentionally so I don't really know what I'm doing right now. I'm just trying to write. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Makes sense. Just exploring. Yeah. <laughs> so to wrap things up, I like to ask, is there something that you're reading right now or some form of media that you're loving or finding inspiring?
1: Um. Recently. So we have in our house, we have so many books and sometimes they get lost on the bookshelf and I forget to read something that I bought years ago. And, um, I picked up a couple of weeks ago, Chase Twitchell's new and selected poems, um, which I think came out maybe a year or two ago. Um, and they're called, it's called Courses Where the Answers Should Have Been. Um, and she's a poet I, I hadn't read until I started reading her new and selected and man, it is so good. Mm. So her book is one that I, and it's like, I, I mean, the poems, I think they, Go back to maybe 1980 was her first collection. So there's so many of them, and it feels like I've just discovered a treasure trove that I didn't know existed. Um, because I'm reading her for the first time. Um, I just finished reading Sarah Wainscott's new or it's her first book. It won the Lexi Rodnitsky. Um, it's called Insecurity System. And it's it's all it's a kind of loose series of sonic crowns. They're not titled each poem. 14 lines and picks up the line of the previous last line of the previous to begin the new one. Um, and that was really good. Um, it's yeah. It kind of does a time travel thing and uses like high language and low conversational language. And she's just really smart and has a really, um, good ear for tone and a good eye for the image. Um, so that's kind of poetry-wise what I've been reading recently
0: in the last couple of weeks. Great. Um, they both sound amazing. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been a really great conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you, Andrea, for having me.
0: Uh, it's
1: fun to talk about. I, I mean, I, anything I say, I think I say best in a poem.
0: <laughs> I feel like I <laughs> speak in a really clumsy way about my work, but hopefully something here is clear. <laughs> I thought you did wonderful. Thank you so much. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And thank you everybody for listening. This is New Books and Poetry, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.